1: Kia ora, you're
2: listening to Manawatū People's Radio, te reo on the o ngatangata Manawatū, and this is Calling All Workers, our regular show from Unions Manawatū. Today's episode is a special extra-long episode comprised of the launch event for the book, Helen Kelly, Her Life by Rebecca McPhee. The Manua 2 launch of this biography was held at the Central Library on July the 17th. Martin, the Boca of Union two. A reporter, um, when looking at the agenda, said to me, um, this is not just a book launch, this is a tribute to Helen Kelly. So yes, um, so let's start. Since they were formed amid the protest against the Employment Contracts Act, 30 years ago, In 1991, they have articulated through song the major issues of the day that affect ordinary New Zealanders in a creative, uplifting, and humorous way. Manua 2 was very fortunate to have these organised, committed, and talented singers give so much and ask so little. I want to mention their favourite thank you card which they especially treasure, describing them as brave, beautiful, bold, bountiful, boisterous, and, of course, brazen. There have been many individuals who have graced their, their presence, their group, over the years. There's six of them today. Donna, Elizabeth, Joe, Hannah, Jean, and mary Their first ever CD was launched in 2013, titled, And We Are Strong. But this is no recording. We've got them live here in front of us and still going strong after 30 years together. Please welcome Manawatu's own, the Brazen Hussies.
1: Thank you very much, Diane, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, Humans Wanawa 2 for organising this event uh, and inviting us to participate. We are very um, appreciative of that. Uh, We are going to sing uh, two songs this afternoon. The first one is We Were There. This is a woman's anthem, and it acknowledges women's contribution uh, over the decades, and it is very appropriate. Of course, uh, our second song is um, a it would be a trade union um, woman's anthem, uh, Union Made, and it is also very appropriate for today. But we always sing our introductory, introductory brazen hussies, <laughs> excuse me. And today we are singing this um, with great gusto for Helen, because we believe that if she wasn't brazen. And if she wasn't strong, she wouldn't have achieved what she achieved in her, in her lifetime, albeit short. So, um, thank you, Helen, for your legacy of brazenness. We're brazen hussies and
3: we don't give a damn. We're love, we're all and we're fighting for our rights and our sex and our
0: fun. We are here. When the boys came round, she always stood the ground. Oh, you can't scare me! I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. She'd always organise her, gosh, she'd always get her way When she asked for higher pay, she'd show her car to the National Guard And this is what she'd say, oh, you can't scare me I'm sticking to the Union, I'm sticking to the Union I'm
3: sticking to the Union, oh, you can't scare me I'm sticking to the
0: Card, even with a union card, she's got to stand on her own two feet, not be Nine. a student on the male elite It's time to make a stand, keep, keep working, working hand in hand. For oh, there's a job that's got to be done and a fight that's got to be won. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to, to the union. union. I'm...
2: female president of the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions uh, for almost a decade, 2007-2015. She died on 14th of October 2016 at the tender age of 52. Helen Kelly was a fearless activist and leader and that's why this book honours her and you honour her by attending this this, uh, book launch today. When I approached the Manitou Standard to see if they were interested in running a story on this book launch, their reporter came back to me and um, he said that, look, the editor doesn't see much value in running it because there's already been a book launch in Wellington uh, and an article is circulating and stuff on it. So, you know, unless you can give me a decent local angle or connection to it that he could sell to his editor, then they wouldn't be running anything. So I gave him the following ANSCO story all true. And his eyes lit up, and he went back to the editor He came back to me and said, the editor, editor is now definitely interested.
1: <laughs>
2: so I'm going to take you back to that story, I'm going to take you back to uh, 2011. Helen Kelly was very prominent here in Manawatu during the ANSCO CMP Meatworks Lockout in Martin right on State Highway 1 from September to December uh, 2011 but a hundred workers locked out of the factory without pay uh, for nearly four months before the res- dispute was actually resolved. At the commencement of the dispute, union organisers within Union's Management 2 at the time had a fierce internal squabble over tactics. Questioning another union's tactics to start that <coughs> you do. It was a verbal and email squabble to start with, and then became physical. I actually got punched in the head. <laughs> passions passion, moved moved from the union movement, I tell you. That same day there was a meeting set in the afternoon, the very same day where about thirty or forty passionate union organisers were all going to turn up and battle it out. I had my supporters, they had their supporters, it was about to get verbally heated, even maybe physical again. Helen Kelly heard about it, drove up from Wellington, turned up to the meeting here in Palmerston North in the midst of the chaos. The noise. Ella Kelly walked in, calmly sat down. Without raising her voice, she took control of the room. She said, I know about your internal dispute over tactics. I've seen all your circulating emails. You are all going to forget about this. This is not about you. These workers are struggling with no pay heading into Christmas. Their needs come first. You are going to commit to supporting these workers who have been locked out of their workplace by their employer because that is what the union movement does. You will organise a roster to support the picket. You will distribute food to them and their families and you will raise donations for them. By the time she had finished, every union organiser left that room fired up to do what Helen Kelly had told us to do and we all did it totally focused on supporting those workers for the next three months of that dispute. Helen, as you know, was known for the big battles such as Pike River, reforming health and safety laws to reduce the abysmal high number of deaths in the forestry industry, and fighting the employment law exemptions for the Hobbit's production. Here in Palmy itself, we have a special tribute to Helen, a permanent tribute. Every 28th of April, at the Fitzroy Street entrance of Memorial Park, unions in the wider community gather to remember International Workers' Memorial Day, where unions, number two, have a workers' memorial stone to remember those workers killed, injured, or made ill at work. We are very proud to say that the memorial stone has a separate plaque attached to it, after Helen died, we had a special um, ceremony where her family came down and um, dedicated. And it says, very simply, dedicated to Helen Kelly, a fighter for workers' health and safety. So um, we're going to have. Um, we're very honoured here to have Mary Varnum, the author of Helen Kelly: Her Life. No. What did I say, <laughs> oh, oh my gosh! I'll start it again. <laughs> edit that bit.
0: <laughs>
2: Delete that bit. Edit. Um, we are recording this for um, for a Two People's Radio.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: We're very honoured here to have Rebecca McPhee, the author of Helen Kelly, Her Life, and Mary Barnum, Editor in Chief of the publishers, Our Press, and to have Steve Mahari here today. It's a coup to have you here today, Steve. It's a coup. And we're very grateful for the for the library to, to provide this wonderful space for us. Jenny Bella, thank you very very much for the big cooperation. And Bruce Mackenzie Bookshop, Louisa and Bruce McKenzie. Um, and it just yeah. So we're going to be and later on we're going to have a cup of tea. Um, we're going to have a, um, biscuits at the back. Course signing. Um, the author would love to see you. We want to we want to leave books because I always say the two best books in New Zealand at the moment on history that people should read is the Pike River book and Helen Kelly, her life historic history in New Zealand, right in front of you and I say Helen Kelly would have absolutely loved this event because it is as um, Todd it, people acting together so um, without further ado um, I'm going to um, sing a song so if you know me, I, I never finish uh, speaking without singing a song. So this song is dedicated to Helen Kelly, to the Pike River 29, and to uh, and their families, who Helen Kelly so strongly advocated for. I am a coal miner, a coal miner's son. I go down to the black every day with my pick and my shovel. My mates are my brother's my loved ones left safe in the bright. We remember you boys, our fathers, our sons. You are the men we stand for. The Pike 29, who we lost down the mine, united our people as one. The Pike 29, who we lost down the mine, united our people as one. Kia kaha. I want to now welcome uh, Palmer School City Councillor, standing proudly on the Labour Party ticket, Lorna Johnson.
3: Thank you, Diane. katoa, uh, mai, Um, I'm very grateful to be asked to say a few words. Thank you, Diane, uh, for organising this. Um, Because really, um, for those of us who are in the Labour Party and the the wider Labour movement, um, Helen Kelly was really an inspiration. And um, it's a privilege to be able to say a few words at this event. So uh, Diane's focused a lot on uh, Helen's union work, which of course was what she was mostly known for. But um, within the Labour Party... um, Helen was really a key person. Um, She was someone on whom a lot of hopes rided as a future leader. And I must say that her loss was very keenly felt um, in the Labour Party itself. So I first met Helen at a TEU training day for women union delegates in uh, 2008. So this uh, took place in Wellington And Helen, who had recently uh, stood down as the AUS president and was now the CTU uh, secretary, was um, invited to come along and uh, talk to us. And I must say, uh, she was, as as Diana said, one of those people that when she came into the room, you knew straight away that she was there. She had a lot of charisma. Uh, She was a brilliant uh, speaker. She knew how to reach out to an audience. Everyone was paying attention when Helen was speaking. But not only that, after the you know, formal speeches were over and we are doing the workshops and so on, Uh, Helen really was very good at making personal connections with people, at finding out uh, what it was that they were trying to do, um, inspiring us all, I suppose, to be future leaders, and uh, just giving us the tools and the tricks of the trade to be organisers within the union movement at that stage. (coughs) So she was very generous with her time and her skills and talent. And after that, I followed her campaigns with interest, particularly the campaigns around uh, health and safety in forestry, um, the advocacy she did for the workers locally um, at Martin. And let me tell you that those workers knew Helen on a personal basis, and they, she retained friendships with them for years afterwards, and they were being invited down to Wellington to meet her at the CTU. And it was much more than just um, a formal position that she had. She befriended people. And I think you, you see that in the way that she befriended the families of the forestry workers who were killed. And she also became firm friends with the families of the Pike River miners. Um, and she really uh, had that kind of common touch, as well as being a strong leader. Um, she was uh, very much uh, a fearless person. and. Um, I admired that quality that she had. Um, She was not afraid of anyone, and she was certainly no respecter of authority. And uh, that included the Labour Party. She was very happy to criticise the Labour Party as often as she could, which I think we all appreciated in some ways, uh, because you actually do need to hear from your friends, as well as uh, those who oppose you, what what you should be doing better. And in particular, I remember um, at a Labour Party conference in 2012 in Wellington, Helen was the keynote speaker and she came and she had a bright pink jacket on. There was no missing her at the conference at all. And she she spoke really strongly about shared values of the labour uh, movement and the union movement. But she also challenged the party. She challenged what she saw um, as the party not doing enough at that stage to uh, speak up for workers, to change the narrative around... Uh, workers being lazy and not really uh, working hard enough, which was what was being pushed by the National Party government at that stage. And and what she said to us at that time was that although that she was president of the CTU, she said, "I'm an insider. This is the party I support, and so I feel free to speak with both my hats on." And and she certainly did speak freely, which was good. Um, Andrew Little at one stage described her as fearless and a complete pain in the arse. So, um, you know, it was really devastating news uh, when we heard that she had cancer and was terminally ill, and to lose her from the Labour movement and the Labour Party when she was still only in her early 50s and had so much left to give. Um, She was the sort of person that we all wanted to see in Parliament. And there were many attempts made to persuade her to stand. Um, And I believe at one stage, uh, Trevor Mallard even offered to stand aside in in his uh, hut seat so that she could stand there and he would go on the list. But she resisted that. And I've often thought, why did she resist that? And I think it was that she felt that she could be a more effective agent for change from outside of the party and outside of Parliament than from within. And that's an interesting dilemma for an activist is... When do you uh, think that you could be more effective outside, uh, critiquing, or are you going to be more effective inside, affecting uh, change from within? And I think Helen was a very effective advocate from the outside and didn't uh, want to feel compromised by being part of the Labour Party, I suppose, uh, in a formal sense. So um, I, I think that we all miss her from the Labour movement. We, we miss her, what she could have done. Um, I'm sure that she had a lot more to give and it was a a premature loss. Um, But uh, I'm going to finish with some well-known words from uh, within the Labour movement. Uh, And they came from um, an American activist called um, Joe Hill who said, don't mourn, organise. I think that's a good note to finish on. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Laura. And Brent Barrett is also a Palmer's City Councillor, um, apparently standing on the Green Party ticket. And he couldn't be here today, but he asked me, he said, first of all, he said, get me a book, please buy me a book, I must have a book to to, you know, to, to, to remember and Helen's this great contribution. Uh, and so I will get a book for him, you pay me back. Um, <laughs> Green payback? Um, so he, he just gave a little um, text he said this morning. Uh, and he said, um, I'm sure those in the room will make out al- eloquent comment. My regret that I can't join you, thanks to Rebecca McPhee for her careful work as a biographer. Uh, uh, for her careful work as a biographer on an extraordinary life. Encourage us, encouraging us all. to Let Helen's life be a deep and enduring source of inspiration. And do, despite how sorry at Helen's life cut short, please let this afternoon be one of celebration. That's from Brenda Barrett. Okay, so now um, my duty and honour, really, to. Um, Welcome, Mary Barnum, editor in chief, Our Press. She will introduce the author. Uh, and
0: thanks very much, Dale. Um, and thank you for organising this fabulous event, ora Farming. This is great to be here, even though we had to come through the most torrential rain and really wondered if we were going to make it at some stage. So here we are. And thank you very much to you, Member two, and to Bruce McKenzie, of course, to the wonderful bookseller that you're so lucky to have at Carpenter's the World, a the fantastic bookseller. Um, I'm the editor-in-chief and publisher at a very small independent publishing company called Arrow Press. We set up in Wellington about 13 years ago, and we have a sort of small but jeweled state of, state of the authors. We've published people like Steve Bordius and... Um, Diana Wichto and other award winning authors, and of course, Rebecca. I met Rebecca McPhee um, over 10 years ago, and it's been an absolute joy working with her. Before I talk about Rebecca, though, I want to introduce Steve, which I thought would be actually totally unnecessary in parts of the North, but anyway, nevertheless, Steve was in Parliament. 1990 to 2008. And obviously, some of that time would be very aware of the activities of the CPU and of Helen Kelly, and also of the huge battles that a defeated union movement was having to restore itself. Um, and uh, Steve held many ministerial portfolios: education, science, technology, youth affairs. I think at one stage. Uh, social development. So Steve was in Parliament in 2008 and then left to become Vice Chancellor at Massey University, where um, he did a sterling job for eight years, and is now an independent director. And I was fascinated to read that amongst other things, um, Steve is the chair of Pharmac, which must be an incredibly hard role to fulfil. But so thank you very much, Steve, for agreeing to come along and to be in conversation with Rebecca. Um, so Rebecca and I worked, uh, when I first met Rebecca, it was to do with Pike River. She was writing wonderful stories about um, Pike River Mine Tragedy in The Listener, where she was a senior writer. And I thought, this is an absolutely historic event in New Zealand, this terrible collapse of this mine which the government had lauded as the modern mine and the best you could have in the world. And, So how was it that one day 29 men could walk into this line and not come out again? It just seemed such a horrendous story. Um, And Rebecca seemed absolutely the person to write it. So she immediately said yes, no, she didn't. Uh, (laughs) And to really twist her arm, uh, while we were in negotiations about it, the Christchurch earthquake happened. Her house partially fell down. Um, Even so, I soldiered on by determination to get Rebecca to write this. Um, which as you know she did and it's been an award-winning book and i agree with you Diane, that yeah everybody should read it um and it, it's just an amazing really beautifully researched story and it's been a launching that book was an incredibly moving experience we were on the west coast and all over the country but particularly on the west coast where as you know the story of life is still very much alive and people are still very moved. Sad by what happened at Pike River. Um, I'd have to say that launching the book on Helen Kelly has been as, or even more, moving. Really, because all over the, wherever Helen, has, uh, wherever Rebecca has spoken, people have just expressed their enormous love and feeling for Helen Kelly, and she was just such. Um, a brave woman and so much loved, and her death was just like such, such a tragedy. So um, I, I felt completely determined that she, that too many books are written about men, you know, fabulous male leaders, and I thought, In New Zealand we really need more books about the wonderful women that we also have leaders. leader. And <laughs> Helen was, of course, as you say, the first female leader of the CTU and an extraordinary person. I mean, many people have speculated that one day she probably would have entered Parliament and she probably would have become the Prime Minister, should Jacinda ever wish to step down, which <laughs> may, may it been the case. But, um, yeah, so it's been extremely moving, and I always say, well, one of the most loved women in New Zealand was Helen Kelly, and one of the most respected and loved journalists is Rebecca McPhee. So this book is, in fact, just totally appropriate, and it's wonderful that Rebecca agreed to write it. Um, so, Rebecca, thank you very, very much. Well, I've thanked Rebecca many times, but I still feel incredibly honoured and lucky that she has um, written this book for Ireland Press. So, having introduced you both, um, I hope you will now have a conversation. Thank you very much.
4: One, two. Kia ora. Uh, Good to be here. Um, I'll start by saying thank you very much for the invitation to be here. I think the reason is that Rebecca and my wife Betty are friends. So you know how it works. If you're a friend of a friend, you get asked to do things. But I'm really pleased to to do that. And Betty sends her apologies. Uh, They're both, uh, I should say, uh, not only doing things like writing, but uh, Rebecca and Betty are enthusiastic mountain bike riders, and you can tell from the shape that Rebecca's in, she does a lot of mountain bike riding. Um, Rebecca was a graduate of Otago and Canterbury. Uh, she's has an adult son and daughter. She's an award-winning journalist, as you have heard, uh, the author of the Pipe P- Mine uh, book, which, if you haven't read it, don't read it from the library, buy it, because it helps, that helps most <laughs> <that's laughs> of these, these two people here if you can. Diane's already on record of saying he's buying books for people today so that <laughs> you could ask us to do that um, and it's a pleasure to have you in Palmerston North where else have you been during this, this travels? Wellington, Wellington times three, oh. yeah. Yeah. is it all? Yeah. Is it all? Yeah. Um, yes, Wellington times
5: two actually, Auckland times two In fact, the last audience um, was the Auckland Fabian Society. And I hope this is, you know, not a bad sign. (laughs) But some members of that audience nodded off. So really, I'm well my game today. <laughs> that will not
4: happen here. Uh, Kevin, are you still yeah, here at the back? Think you were in charge of keeping people alive if, we're, <laughs> <laughs> if we look like we're, we're going quiet. But let me start with the book itself, because um, Mary, as uh, probably many of you know, and from what she just briefly said, is a long time publisher of outstanding books in the country. What did you just think about the publication of your book, the physical fact of it? What do you think?
5: Um, I mean, I think that the work, the work of publishers is totally unrecognized, and the work of editors is totally unrecognized. It's completely invisible to the production of the incredible. Book. I mean, we have an incredibly busy New Zealand book publishing uh, activity at the moment. There's an amazing range of incredibly well-written, beautifully produced books at the moment, and I mean, they don't just get. Just because somebody like me, you know, sits, you know, goes into their own heads for three years and writes something doesn't turn it into something that feels like this. So I just think, um, I mean, Mary and her team have done an amazing job. The, the cover, I'll tell you about the cover, was um, taken in, it would have been the end of April 2015. So Helen was uh, diagnosed with cancer by that time. Um... And we have looked for a long time for the best cover image, had not we, Mary? And, and in the end, I came back to this one, and, and Mary agreed. And it was taken by freelance photographer in Wellington, um, Hagen Hopkins, for a, a profile that I had written for the listener, who I was still working for at the time, about Helen. And it was, it was just the stand best photo in the end, because she's She's just who she is. She's just like looking at you and saying Right, this isn't right. We're gonna sort this out. Um, and she's kind of saying a few other things too that you know you might add an expletive to if you really felt like it. So um, yeah, so short answer is it's lovely. Yeah.
4: Is is um, Rebecca's mic quieter than mine? Yes, yeah, it's it oh, yeah. right. right. okay. Pretty much more important than me. Um, I thought so too. I thought when I, I looked at the book, uh, Todd, before, when you introduced and used the word worry, when, when I look at um, this, sometimes I, I'm reminded of Xena uh, yeah. and Lucy Lawless, that sort of same sort of fierce, <laughs> sort of out there kind of approach. I thought your approach... And Todd it was, was there is spot a story on. in the book, as you will recall.
5: Yeah.
4: Well, I, do I recall. I should just say very briefly that um, when, when Betty told me I was doing this, Um, I got the dates mixed so um, I thought I had I don't know, I thought I'd been invited at the last minute and I had 24 hours to get the book so the book turned up and I read it it that night and then rang rang Rebecca to say, right, I'm ready to go and she said, that's good, very, very well prepared (laughs) for about three weeks time so uh, so I I had forgotten a bit of the stuff I skimmed through. The book's a biography and I noticed that a lot more biographies are coming out these days and certainly I don't know the rest of you but I read more biography than I used to read and that's because I just find them just really interesting why do you think the biography has become a a form that so many people like these days?
5: Yeah I don't know it's always hard to know you know what's happening for people generally and what's your own personal preference Um, I mean I personally struggle to read a novel these days because there's so much um, that I have to learn that I I just hunt for brilliant nonfiction. I think the biography—I hadn't read a lot of biography, and I'd started a lot of biographies in the past and put them down because they would begin with um, Mister. Bloggs was born in 1923, and his his mother Ethel was, you know, 24 at the time. And I'd kind of get to the, you know, halfway through the first page and like, haven't got time. um but i i read I went looking for a lot of biographies when I was working on this to kind of understand the genre a bit more and and I found um, a number that I felt were quite inspiring um, and a couple of them were actually written by journalists i don't i don 't know I hate to sound a bit sort of you know arrogant maybe, but journalists write to be read, you see, and i think um, A lot of biographies don't necessarily think about the reader hard enough. Um, They don't think about the the drive of the story enough. And so a biography has got the capacity to carry the story of a period as well as the story of the person through. Um, I mean, I just really enjoyed reading Michael Cullen's memoir so autobiography um, for exactly that reason. I mean, I, I... I trust his integrity as a historian to have told an accurate story, so that's kind of the first hurdle we have to get over. But I just found it incredibly interesting and, and a great read to be taken through that tumultuous period of our history through his eyes. And I, I think maybe, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think it has, as a genre, I, I think it's got huge power and potential, really.
4: Yeah. As you say, having people write who are not writing some yeah. dry academic piece, but something that would be want to read. Mm-hmm. So why Helen? How did you How you pick her? Um.
5: So I did. I did know Helen for a few years, um, and I had worked on stories for the Listener uh, on campaigns that she was working on. Obviously, Pike River. I didn't meet her through writing the Pike River book. I met her afterwards, but very soon after the Pike book came out, the Peter Whittle charges were. Dropped, and that was the beginning of this epic campaign that Helen launched in hand in hand with two of the Pike women to um, to try and overturn that decision to let people walk away on the payment of money. Um, so I got to know her pretty well in a, as a journalist working with um, an activist, and I also wrote about her forestry campaign, which um, had been. Building while I was writing the Pike story, and because I was so deep in the Pike cave, I hadn't even noticed that story was going on. I came out, met her at the launch of the Pike Walk in Wellington, and realised she had this story going on that um, was incredibly important with huge parallels with Pike. So, yeah, so we had that interaction as well. We kind of, I suppose, we bonded over Pike. I, I think, you know, I. The rage that I have about it, she had. She was an activist. She had this capacity to do things in a way that I couldn't do as a writer. So, so yeah, we had that relationship. And then she, when she became sick, she allowed me to. She agreed that I could do a profile of her for the listener. And she hadn't really done anything like that before. She was quite prominent by then because she was in the media a lot. She was great media talent. To comment on zero hours contracts and. Um, the latest tallies lockout or um, what's happening with wages or whatever, but she hadn't ever allowed anybody to really tell her story before. She was actually quite reserved about that, surprisingly, for somebody so extroverted. So it was quite a big deal when she said, okay, okay then. <laughs> she she would let me write this profile. So that was kind of, you know, the next thing. And while I was interviewing her, which um, she was <laughs> I went to Wellington to interview her and on the plane on the runway from Christchurch I got the call saying actually it's a bit of trouble, she's in hospital, she's nearly dead um, because she'd had this enormous heart complication. But by then I was on the plane strapped in, and we were on the runway so I came and so, and said then the next day she decided she would have recovered enough from her near death experience for me to come and visit her and we would have the interview in the hospital, <laughs> provided I didn't tell anybody that she was in hospital while I interviewed her because... She didn't want anybody thinking she was dead yet. <laughs> so that was, I knew her. When she, when Helen died, um, a group of Helen's mates and colleagues got together and formed a thing called the Helen Kelly's Kelly Legacy Committee, and they had this kind of idea that, you know, what can we do to pr- preserve Helen's legacy in some way? They didn't really know what to do, but they had this idea maybe that somebody would write a book, and they didn't really know would be involved in that but they thought that I might be a good person to do it and and I sort of spent about a year saying no thanks um, probably longer actually because I <coughs> had a nice job um, but it kind of got at me in the end um, and by the beginning of 2018 I think it was I said Yeah. okay um, so it was in, it was I did insist that I do it independently as a journalist, and so, and I knew Mary wanted to publish this book, because she'd already expressed that to me previously. So, I'm quite protective of this, that it's not written before the union movement or by the union movement. It's not a commissioned book. Um, a fellowship was raised for me by, by from people who I deliberately don't know. Um, so I did get some funding which enabled me to not starve but not, um, you know, because otherwise you don't get any money when you're writing books. Um, so that's how it came about.
4: Yeah. Yes. Reading the book, I have to say you had the feeling like you were reading about old politics. Yeah. Like for those who have those been around for a while, there are names in here which you, you know, they're, they're almost the mists of time, like her dad, Pat, her mum, Kath, words like communism running through the book. all all the sort of class-based nature of workers, employers, the kinds of figures that appear in the book. She was a relatively young woman, but she lived during a phase where things were changing quite quite a lot. Did that strike you that way, that she was kind of of an era of politics that might be a little bit in our past now? Yeah,
5: I mean, I suppose I made some authorly decisions about that um, because she you know, back to your first question about why biography, I suppose I, as soon as the idea of a book about Helen had come up, I kind of instantly started, couldn't help myself, sketching in my mind what the shape of such a book would be. And because I knew enough about her parents by then, I knew that a story about Helen had the possibility of telling the story about this um, process of incredibly sort of rapid Change through time, and that she is, she is the bridge from the, the modern era of of a market-based economy, of the emergence of huge inequality, of the collapse of the union movement, um, with a prior era which she was born in, but um, but as she became an adult, that vanished. Um, so she could be the bridge to that via her parents, who are so utterly influential in her makeup, in her worldview, in her intellectual analysis, that you can't write a story about Helen without them anyway. So it kind of, everything led to the story pulling through that old politics, which is incomprehensible now. Um, it was like writing about another country. In fact, even, you know, I mean, I had some background in writing about industrial relations, so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a complete on that. But, you know, the bit where I had to realise I needed to tell the modern reader what the industrial conciliation and arbitration system was like was like, you know, this is like some, you know, vision from Mars. How can, how can, it, how can, people of my kids' generation who are in their 20s, how can, I, how can I take them through this and make them understand that this actually occurred and it was in this country? So it's really challenging. Really, really, really It was a struggle um, to write it in a way that I didn't sort of feel like I was risking losing younger readers because it was so weird in terms of their own life experience.
4: You mentioned two of the things that I think um, changed her politics and one of course is the what um, Colin James called the quiet revolution of Roger Douglas and so on. What, what were her views of that? I know she was challenged in terms of her politics but what did she think about that? Was there anything redeeming in it? Was it all bad? How, how did she feel?
5: No, I mean I suppose I, a, a, a lot of, the answer that I have to hypothesise a little bit about because she's a young woman at this time so she was, at Helen at the age of 19 went to Teachers College in 1983 and she, you know, pamphleteered for Fran and in elected Central in 1984 and, and her parents Pat and Kath were completely immersed in the Labour Party by that time, they left the Communist Party and were now stores of the Labour Party and so I, I know from the nature of the conversation and the tone of the meal table conversation at, in the family house what that would have entailed. And I know that because every month Pat would write a, a flaming rhetorical essay for the, his executive at the Cleaners Union about the latest travesties of this, this so-called Labour government. So she... Um, I think the thing about Helen is in terms of, she's grown up in this communist household where life is the, the, where the struggle is about the working class the vehicle for the struggle is the union movement the political vehicle now given the you know collapse of the communist party is the Labour Party and so Pat and Kath had doubled their Marxist education and studied you know, thought and been to China and so like Helen didn't need to intellectualise all that. And Dylan, Helen's son, Dylan, once made a comment to me that he thought it was like muscle memory for her. And I think it's about the best way I can describe it myself, really, is that, and even in her later years, Helen didn't really kind of overly intellectualise, overly um, theorise about the structure of economic um, or the structure of the economy that was causing poverty, causing men to die at work unnecessarily she just uh, she was just, I think that the idea of, of class and of the allocation of power in an economy was so embedded in her gut that that was where it operated from mm.
4: Was she a feminist?
5: Yeah, Mary and I were talking about this on the way up actually I mean of course I think she was but she didn't um, she didn't identi- she wouldn't have said her first point of identification is to be a feminist she would have said I'm a unionist she in terms of how she saw herself what, what, what label she might have put on herself if she had, if she had to do that it's, that she's a unionist and in fact some unionists Thought in the end, but you, you wouldn't really call her a unionist. You'd call her a workerist, because it wasn't about the structure of the unions either. In terms of an institutional kind of framework, it was about what was the position of people who labour for their living, and what was what was that story? What was wrong with the allocation of power and control in the economy that meant that that was being out of shape for them? And, and what do we, as people who understand that struggle, do about that. So underneath, you know, if you say take that first point of identification as unionist or workerist, yeah, women's struggles. I mean, her first job at the union movement was the early childhood workers movement. I mean, that's the front line of the feminist movement. So of course she was. (coughs) But she got offside with, you know, a lot of staunch, stroppy feminists in the union movement because they didn't think she knew to stripes in the in the kind of feminist um, end of the, of the union movement. Um, but yeah, I think she was a feminist and I think her mother Kath was a feminist but Kath would say she was certainly no such thing. She thought feminism was a ridiculous middle class diversion from the class struggle.
4: <laughs> well, speaking of divisions um, for people who probably are in those kinds of politics, what would you think of modern politics identity politics with, with all the kinds of trappings that go around the increasingly fragmented series of identities and all these new issues <laughs> like climate change that, that really have dominated where, where would she fit in, in all of that?
5: Look, I'm speculating here because you know I didn't, I never discussed it with her when she was alive, and I didn't see sign of this in her papers when I was working on the book. But my hunch is she'd be pretty pissed off, actually. Um, I think she would, I think she would think about it a little bit like Kath would think about it, which is that all of this fracturing is just uh, weakening any kind of coherent activism. On behalf of people who are powerless, and I think she'd be pretty appalled actually. Um, you know, further to my point before about her not having to sort of overtly intellectualize or her framing, you know, I think basically her analysis was always about she, she brought it back to really fundamental ideas of fairness and justice. And so if she thought that just gross you know, unfairness was being exhibited towards trans people, I mean, no, that would not be okay. I mean, no, that's not right. That's not humane. That's not decent. That's not fair. But that wouldn't mean that her first point of identification would be with that community. It would be about... Um, it was kind of the politics of fairness, or the kind of a capital F in a way, and I think you saw this increase on the climate issue, the particularly, she became stronger in this through the last few years, much clearer about her understanding of what the climate crisis represented. She made an amazing speech about a year before she died, actually, which is probably one of the best speeches she made, where she really, um, I guess, she, it hints at her kind of, basically, you know, Growing up as a Marxist, and the father really, because she describes it as an exhibition of of what un, uh, unrestrained capitalism will do in the end, which is it will, it will consume the very earth we live on. You know, it will consume the workers who go to work without protection and without proper pay, because they will die on the forest floor. It will. It will consume the resources because there are no limits and no proper rules. It will pollute the rivers because there are no restraints. It will consume the very world because there are no limits to how much carbon um, the the business of, of capital will pump into the atmosphere so everything kind of came underneath that fundamental really kind of intuitive frame of power fairness and justice
4: What was she like as a person? You think? Can you capture that as a public image? But what's the personal Mm. image?
5: She was an extrovert, so that was kind of interesting for me um, to see life, you know, as a sort of somewhat introverted, reserved person. She's quite unguarded. I've never seen anybody capable of accumulating friends like it Mm. and keeping them. And she kind of did that with, you know, that's kind of what for me, which was weird, as a journalist, you kind of normally, no, 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 no. It's proper. you know, shook hand and don't hug. Um, but, you know, she was like, mate, you know, just call me mate. <laughs> in the middle of me, me interviewing her in her hospital bed for that profile, she invites me to her wedding, to Steve, because she's dying now, so it's like, I better get married. not the Steve. Not, no, not yeah, the Steve. And like, I know, totally, there was no way that I was on the wedding list before she, it, you know, the words just kind of fall out of her mouth. You're invited. And I went, you know. Was that what she was like? And she, you, was, when she went out into these, um, and Lorna made this point before about the, um, the CMP lockout, you know, and I talked to some of those workers. Um, she, you know, she makes this, she makes friends. Like she breaks all the rules, totally breaks the rules about that. You know, a few uh, the normal kind of boundaries around somebody's professional activity and don't get too involved. I and mean, she became the godfather, godmother of one of the babies born on that picket line. Mm-hmm. Um, she'd drive up there. She'd go. She knew who was running out of. Money on their cell phone, and she'd go out and buy phone cards before she drove up there. They'd have a front seat full of phone cards for certain workers that she knew were running out of money on their phones. I mean, just ridiculous. Nobody, nobody would be doing that in that kind of role. So she had this incredibly sort of porous nature, and um, so that's like it's an It's a sort of kind of a really outstanding. Aspect of outstanding in the sense of being, you know, um, a dominating aspect of the character. She was also, um, she, had, she had this capacity to remain friends with people um, if she didn't fall out with them, which did happen in some cases. But she, she was actively, closely, still in uh, warm, loving friendships with women she went to. She was at Clyde Key School it, at the age of five. And, which was also, it was a revelation to me too. This, you know, she, she had this capacity to make time, and I think that's to do with being an extrovert, make time for friends, family. She a very, very loyal niece um, and daughter. You know, for something, you know, if I'm on deadline, I can barely find time to ring my old father. You know, I found this quite... Um, humbling to see that behaviour in action. Mean, and I didn't have to learn that second hand from people because I you know, I had her papers. I could see I could see the emails writing to her uncle Jim in Auckland and when he was struggling and then he needed a cocktail and she was gonna go and get it for him.
4: <laughs> yeah. Um, Don outlined a bit about how she operated in terms of the of the kinds of causes, the many causes she took up. Did that ring a bell with you? For other ways, the other causes that she she took up, but that was her way of operating. Yeah,
5: yeah, and just to well, I guess, say the story again, really. I think she was operated on a number of levels. I mean, she was very strategic, and she was trying to rebuild the union movement. So, I mean, she spent really the first probably three years leading the CDU, kind of trying to reform the union movement in the normal way by writing these tedious papers that nobody would read and organising conferences and getting working groups together and trying to make people turn up to them and trying to get them to give feedback on things that have been written about how you would perform the union movement. And basically it was all like sort of, you know, dragging something through LARD really. Because um, the union movement, like any other organisation, is particularly prone to changing itself. And in the end, I think really the opportunities... I think she the more she learnt and the more things sort of appeared before her, she just went after them, really. And I think the pivotal story which is in the book, where you see this happen, where she goes from, you know, patiently trying to kind of bring the movement along with her through, you know, working papers and whatnot, and banging a few kids together, is when the young security guard, Charnpreek Daliwal, who's 21, Is murdered on his first night at work as a contractor, as a security guard in Auckland, and she reads about it in the paper a couple of days later, and she goes into the office and says to Peter Conway, "We're going to do something about this." So of course, this boy is not a union member. He's a migrant. He's just you know the RC end of a complex global supply chain, and he's one individual whose mother is in some colony in India, and she goes after it, and she she didn't leave that story until really the, a coroner's hearing was the final full stop on it in, in 2015. So it was, she went she chose that as this. If we don't, if we can't defend the honour of this boy who's been sent to the other side of the world by his mother, murdered on his first night at work. It, on a dark, lonely site with his little LED torch and his borrowed boots we're not worth anything and then you see that same thing just carries on with, so it's the end of 2011 Pike has happened by then anyway, which was a galvanising event for her as for anybody who has an ounce of compassion um, and then she, then she realises all these forestry boys are dying just bang like flies, and she goes after that. None of them are, are union members either. Um, she didn't wait for permission to do that. If she had waited, she wouldn't have done it, because the union movement, I think, I can confidently say, would have said, "Well, you know, you know, first unions, are, you know, they've been trying to organise those forestry workers, but uh, you know." Um, difficult and it really is incredibly difficult and so she just did it her way really by basically hardcore, law organising herself,
4: yeah. I'm going open up the floor a minute, because I know that's what we're going to do but just while you're gathering your thoughts, one last question, in the book it says, or someone says that she was the uh, best Prime Minister we never had, <laughs> is that your view? I
5: don't know actually. Um, yeah um, I'm not sure if I've settled a review on that really Um, I mean she might not have been compliant enough to be a Prime Minister to be honest (laughs) um, I see you nodding Lorna, you know, you're on the inside of this and you would have a better idea than me I think she made absolutely the right decision in 2014 not to go um, because she would have sat there in the opposition. Backbenchers, she wouldn't have gone through that absolutely sort of burnishing experience of working with those forestry families, getting more um, clear, I think, in her analysis of what's wrong. Um, and she wouldn't have been able to do as much in terms of shifting the public narrative around the worth of workers and what's happening in wages and in vulnerability and precarity and safety as she was able to do by taking her voice really with the mana, obviously to you behind her, but not with its commission necessarily, into the public domain I don't think she could have done that from the back benches What do you think, Lorna? I agree with you yeah. I, I think, and I think she also would
3: the out for herself yeah that she was much more effective uh, working from her position in CTU than she would be even, as a backbench MP or as an opposition MP mm-hmm. and I think although the party at that stage was quite what should say will well, short of talent, maybe in the leadership of States, and was, was looking around for people to bring in she was quite staunch in remaining outside and I think that that was to the benefit of the campaigns
5: that she ran and she was more effective that way and she had more trusted credit for the public, public in that way than she would have be been that's just
4: what, what do you think, Mr. former yeah. later cabinet minister? <laughs> I don't think she would have um, enjoyed it at all I think it's, it's, it's a, and the fact that she would have come into politics she would have come in as a backbencher. people often move a lot faster now she might have enjoyed it more coming into politics and in a very contemporary time but I think when she came in she would have started as the, as it was often referred to as the third formers mm-hmm. who would be really too often asked to do things whereas she, she wasn't the person who asked to do things really, she asked herself to do things as far as I could see so yeah. No, I, I, think, I think, too, she made the right decision. You see a lot of people actually do go into Parliament who see themselves as, not on not Helen's uh, calibre, but they come in very much as champions of a cause, and they hate it, because they end up on a back bench, someone's telling what to do, telling them what to say, and until they've been there for a while and they can rise through the ranks, they find they cannot articulate that, and they, they leave. So I, I think she did the right thing by staying where she was, and she made an impact because of that. Yeah. But questions from you, and then we we'll, we'll, we'll want to break up so we can have a cup of tea and, and biscuits and buy books and just do all that stuff. But is anybody sitting on a question they'd like to, to put to a Rebecca, or would they like to do that one-to-one? Let me just see. always a, a, an Achilles heel, you know, there's always something which people don't manage well. And I just wondered whether there's some, something that she she struggled with or didn't manage well.
5: Um, yeah, probably, um, I mean she was madly busy, um, she was at work at midnight all the time. Um, She was, um, you know, she could be t- she's she was hard. She could be tough, you know. She would inflict pretty um, glancing blows on people sometimes with her judgment and criticism. And I talk about that in the book. Um, but I think a lot. I think she softened during her illness, which sometimes happens with people. But um, she. No, that's probably the best way I can answer that question, is Yeah. I just, I just like to say, if you haven't it, bought...
3: I just
1: want to say it's a wonderful book. I've, I've read it, I bought it for my daughter. If you haven't read it yet, buy it. And it is a joy and also
5: very moving. I cried I cried at the end, I do want to say that to you. Um, it's the best book I've read in a very long time. Thank you.
0: what do you think her view would have been on where we've got to with medical cannabis?
5: Um, I think she'd be pretty frustrated because it's not got really anywhere much at all. Um, yeah, she would be frustrated, I, I think I could say that much, yeah.
2: When I think of that uh, previous generation of union leaders, you know, Pat Kellys, Jim Knox, uh, Tom Skinner and so on, I tend to think um, ideology first, and that, you know, that's a very strong class-based um, position they're coming from. When I think of her, I tend to think of issues first, even though it's coming from a you know, strong, obviously, a philosophical position. But is that a fair analysis, that there's a, a shift there from ideology to, to issues? Yeah, yeah, I
5: think totally. And issues slash values as well. Yeah, and it's sort of what I was trying to say before, really, about that distinguished her from her parents' generation. That she she had she'd absorbed her intellectual landscape from them by just being steeped in it, and steeped in the union movement, which you know would visit the house. But she somehow, through maybe it's an accident of of the times, um, and just. Growing up in the 80s, while all of this is going on, I think she she she's incredibly good communicator. I think she had a very good nose for what what ideas would would land, Um, and I think she knew the minute if you talked about class in New Zealand in 2012, you'd turn the lot turn everybody off. You'd be ridiculed. I think that's changed. I think you can do it now, but I don't think you could then. And I think she knew that. And so, and because, you know, she, she was, I think she, so she, she did make that shift. She's probably just actually a lot more pragmatic than her parents. I think Pat was actually quite pragmatic, he was a deal doer. But Kath was, you know, a, a rigid ideologue. Um, so she's kind of, you know, a lot of people who knew the whole family would often say to me, oh, she was, you know, she was both parents plus kind of thing so I think she she drew on the kind of intellectual framing that she'd kind of grown up with with both of them and the kind of steely kind of determination of her mother you can see that in her and Pat's was sort of you know funny and loving and tough and hard and um, and actually it was about for him not having Children growing up in the kind of squalid poverty that he himself had grown up in. So it was all wrapped up in Marxism and communism and everything for Pat, but really it was quite values driven for him as well. So I think she she sort of, you have to sort of extrude her from her parents through the times which can't move into a sort of a market economy. And she's got this nose for communication, so she knows that the way you defend the rights
4: of people who don't have power is through issues and values. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Last chance. Okay, that finishes it for me. You hang on to that. Um, can I just say, Mary, fantastic production. It's just one of the things I really love about New Zealand books now is they look so good. In the old days you always you know, bought the book and thought, oh, it looks like something from, you know, the Eastern Bloc Nations or something you know. now, now they just look fabulous so I think the book does you a credit and Rebecca I, I, I think you've written a book which is a milestone book uh, because pe- it is a real touchstone book for a whole series of reasons like your Pike book people are going to ref- reference this because of, of what you've had to say um, because it's also about a person who was a defining New Zealander so I think it's a, it's, it's a great patch between the two of you to bring us a, a book that's it's really going to resonate I think for a lot of time Back to thank you. you. Thank
2: you very much. So we've had a wonderful uh, afternoon. We've had, uh, thank you for Todd t- uh Thank you to the Brazen Hussies and um, myself and I spoke from the Union point of view and then uh, Lorna from the, uh, Lorne Johnson from the um, Labor Party point of view. Uh, we've had Mary Varnum, Editor-in-Chief introducing uh, Rebecca McPhee, author of Kelly her life, and in conversation with Steve Mahari, thank you Steve, and I, and, and I did enjoy that format. I really enjoyed that format, conversation format, that was your idea wasn't it Rebecca? Yeah I think, I think it works, thank you for that, keep us really, really, really interested. So once again the book will be available for purchase here on site, thank you to Bruce McKenzie Bookshop once again, um, I remember Bruce McKenzie got a little story. Um, uh, back back in 1997, I was part of the Save the Avenue, the Servant Avenue uh, campaign. Save <laughs> those trees and we we built up trees and we. Uh, uh, and Bruce McKenzie, those days cell phones went around. 1997, he gave us his cell phone, uh, and we had up the tree and we were able to ring, ring the reporters and stories and stuff. <laughs> I know Chris Tio was up there constantly, and there was hours and hours. Some mess of was phone bills Massive phone bill, which we eventually paid off years later. Um, But good old Bruce McKenzie, and the the cell phone was like a bit of of a block, you know, brick. (laughs) So thank you, Bruce McKenzie. He's always been there. Now Louisa, his daughter, is um, um, is, uh, taking over that mantle. And the library, Jenny Feller and the cooperation we've got from the library, wonderful room, lovely format. Thank you very, very much. Um, Have I missed anybody? Just you. Oh. Just you Thank you, Diane. <laughs> biscuits. We've provided biscuits, chocolate biscuits at the end, and a cup of tea and coffee. So you're welcome to stay around. I know I want a couple of photos with the author, but that'll be later on. Be a hope there's a big line up here of people, and um, I've got several books to buy for people now. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: Very good. So we are going to conclude. We're going to conclude with Helen Kelly's favourite song. And I know that I'm, going to, I'm allowed to lead it with Brazen Hussies. They find this song very hard, very hard to sing. They can't get the pitch. But it's Bread um, and Raises. And come on, come, come, come out here and, and, and help us lead it. It's very hard to sing, but we're going to sing it. Thank you very much, everybody. Yes, 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 yes. Better than Yes, yes. yes. that right? yeah. Yeah. See, yeah. Well, I've one grandchild and then yeah, two more. Do we stand for this? Yeah, yeah. Mm. That would be good. <laughs> one, two. Yes, we are marching,
0: marching In the beauty of the day a million darkened kitchens, a thousand little mobs gray,
3: untouched
0: with all the radiance that a silent sound discloses. For the people hear us sing
2: red and roses gray.
0: PR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list
1: of stations and go find your new favourite show.